You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today's episode comes to us as part of our partnership with Nexus, an international organization that catalyzes new leadership and accelerates solutions to global problems. In this episode, we welcome Aaron and Andrea Lee Zucker, a Nexus power couple who are both deeply dedicated to self-work and helping others access their own regenerative energy. Between their many shared projects and individual endeavors, Aaron and Andrea illustrate their own capacity to drop into the invisible world to manifest a balanced, optimal life experience. And they coach others to integrate this wisdom into daily life too. So just listening to these two, you'll be inspired to tap into the life energy that propels our everyday life. So thanks, Aaron and Andrea, for inviting us back to presence once again. Enjoy. Welcome, Aaron and Andrea. Thanks, Gino. It's great to be here with you. Well, you guys are definitely uh, the first couple that I've interviewed that um, one's inside and one's outside. Can you describe a little bit about um, what um, a listener who may be visiting your house at this moment would be seeing at this time? Well, um, I am upstairs in my home in a beautiful sun-filled room. And Aaron is I can step out the doors behind me and look over the balcony and Aaron is in the gazebo in the backyard, which he retrofitted into his office during the pandemic when we had uh, all of our kids stomping over his basement office. And it's just stepped that way. I am now a permanent refugee in the backyard. Yeah. (laughs) By choice now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you guys are calling in from where? We're near Washington, D.C., just northwest. Mm-hmm. And so, so I know a little bit about uh, your backstory, but I'd like for you to fill it in. I know that um, Aaron, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but you were essentially a West Coast um, resident, and you and Andrea connected. Um, and I'd like to hear a little bit about the backstory on um, your, you know, the origin of the connection, uh, what inspired you guys to sort of uh, make the leap of faith to partner together. And then Aaron is a part of that to move, um, you know, essentially across the country, um, you know, in order to make it happen. Oh yeah. This is uh, this is one of our favorite stories. So, so I'm actually uh, originally from the Midwest. I grew up near Chicago in the, uh, on the North shore and the suburbs there. And I escaped as soon as I could um, and lived out um some wonderful years in my 20s in Austin, Texas, while it was going through uh, just an incredible growth spurt and sort of the first dot-com boom. Um, So it went from being a sleepy little college town with a capital to a sleepy little tech capital with a a college. Um, And uh, in 2004, I moved out to the Bay Area, and I really thought the Bay Area was my forever home. Um, And one day, a friend of mine called and said, "Uh, hey, there are some people who are going to NASA um, to uh, check things out in uh, uh, at NASA Mountain View in uh, Ames. Would you like to go? And my friend knows that I'm a pilot and an aviation nut. Anything that flies is interesting to me. And so, uh, so of course, I said yes. And uh, 
uh, the day came and I headed down to Ames and started uh, meeting this really interesting group of people. Um, and then <clears throat> on the bus between the supersonic wind tunnel and the quantum computer, we were on a tour. Um, I sat down next to this beautiful, interesting woman on a bus. Um, and we had a conversation that lasted for like five minutes and also eternity. Um, and uh, the rest literally is, is history. Um, but that was the first moment uh, that we ever met. Andrea, do you have color you want to add to that? <laughs> well, um... Yeah, so I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, and was you know living in the D.C. area. And I uh, worked with Nexus, the amazing movement that's brought all of us together. And so I was at that point a staff uh, a staff member of Nexus, and I was invited to speak at a conference in San Francisco, unrelated to Nexus, but found out that the working group on climate change and energy innovation was having this day long visit to NASA. And I said, I should go. And it was amazing, an amazing decision on many levels. So, you know, again, like Aaron said, we sat next to each other on the shuttle bus and I felt like I, we'd cut through everything. It was like, I, I like to say that there's a certain kind of mind that's my favorite mind, and it's the marriage of the scientist and the philosopher or the artist and the engineer, someone who doesn't fit into a box. And immediately in that conversation, I was able to see Aaron's heart and that he is this, you know, scientist, philosopher, artist, engineer. And um, then he asked me to go for a motorcycle ride. And I said yes to going on a motorcycle with a stranger. And, you know, I said, I have three kids, please uh, don't kill me. And he said, I take this very seriously. And we went for, you know, we went for this beautiful ride and I had to uh, go back to DC the next day. And I said, well, I hope you, I see you again one day. And he said, then we will. And then we did. And, you know, here I was a divorced woman with three young children. And Aaron was the, you know, very brave soul who didn't let that, you know, my didn't let that be an obstacle that um, really love was what drove our relationship. And we had this long distance relationship. And then he very bravely moved from Silicon Valley over to the DC area to become part of our uh, complex and beautiful family. It was an easy decision to answer the, the question you posed. Uh, life is just too easy in California. Um, and uh, it's never part of my life plan to uh, live on the East Coast, but I thought, hey, a tour of duty on the other side, I'm, I'm all in. Um, and I've, I've never looked back. It's been almost five years now. Yeah, I, I always think about the Oscar Wilde quote, um, on, you know, the author Oscar Wilde, who basically said if the, if the pilgrims would have landed on the West Coast, that the East Coast <laughs> would have never been discovered. And so... Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, and so, I mean, I'm always a little biased to uh, that. And uh, yeah, I mean, the migration patterns tend, tend to be obviously um, uh, out West, but I mean, you engaged in uh, a reverse commute, Aaron. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I honestly thought Washington, D.C. was like some kind of myth. and I had never been here. The only place I'd ever seen Washington, D.C. was in cartoons and movies. Um, and I had never actually been here until we met and came here for the first time in 2016. So it was, it was sort of shocking that it actually exists, to be honest, uh, for somebody who spent so much time on the other side. Yeah, yeah. And so you guys are both uh, fully engaged in like so much neat stuff that we obviously won't be able to cover everything in, um, you know, the time that we have. But in terms of, um, 
you know, what brought us together was the Nexus community suggests like, oh, you got to talk to Aaron, you got to talk to Andrea about what they're doing. Um, and it really became evident that the community really views you as um, doing really amazing work or, and just really interesting people. And so I'm just curious, and rather than me assuming what that magic looks like, I mean, what's that magic sort of look like for you in terms of that impact magic? I mean, where do you feel most residents? Um, and it doesn't even have to be overlapping between you two. It can be individually. And then also I would like to know what like overlapping uh, impact magic that, I mean, you guys are exploring together. Hmm. Okay, so I'll start. Um, this is always sort of a tough question because for me, I'm the kind of person that doesn't separate between things in general. Everything for me is this great whole, this great sense of oneness. And it's really the, it's love that it's love that drives everything. And then, you know, the particular lens of my background, personality, uh, organic gifts and, you know, family history that really has driven the direction that I've gone. So just to share a little bit of that background, because it's hard for me to share the answer to that question without this background is, you know, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. Um, you know, they came to the U S after the war and were, you know, my mom's side, they you know, survived the war on my dad's side, they escaped before the war. Um, and my dad's, my mom's family came and was placed by a refugee organization in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, my dad's, parents and my father came to the U.S. My dad was three years old from Israel. And so, you know, all of my grandparents are immigrants. My father is an immigrant and in also with this deep trauma in their lineage. And they didn't come to, you know, the Northeast or out West. They came to the deep South in America where there wasn't a large Jewish population. So in a way, they had many layers of otherness, of immigrant you know, survivor, Jewish person in the South where there's a small Jewish community and that sense of otherness, but also their deep sense of love and a moral obligation to be contributors really it went into my DNA very, very deeply. So, you know, my grandparents, they didn't have uh, the financial wherewithal to, you know, contribute in a philanthropic way or anything like that. But on my dad's side, there were teachers on my mom's side, they were just givers, loving, loving neighbors, loving people, taking care of everyone. The way that they, my grandparents could love after experiencing the kind of trauma that they experienced is unbelievable to me. And so they infused that love in the sense of giving, whether through teaching in both of my parents. And my mom became a, a teacher. And my dad was this brilliant scientist, inventor, entrepreneur who you know, high school science project became part of the first lunar landing module, which is why, you know, part of the reason why meeting Aaron at, at NASA was really, really special uh, because, you know, here kind of the space thing is a part of my own, uh, my own history. Um, but, you know, and I grew up in South Carolina. And so my, my dad had these things that he taught us. And my dad passed away, unfortunately, of brain cancer about um, 14 years ago. And he had these things that he taught to me and my brothers, which were never be a bystander to hate, have a sense of urgency in everything that you do, always have a bias towards action, never be afraid to surround yourself uh, by good people, lead by example. And every day before you end each day, 
ask yourself, what have I done today? And this is, you know, can be taken metaphorically uh, or in a very practical sense. What have I done today to, you know, decrease costs and increase profits? But that doesn't have to be in a financial way. It's what have I done today to, you know, fix things where I might have, there might be something that's off. And what have I done today to contribute and that your day shouldn't close before you can answer that question. So those things have guided me and my, you know, family were uh, very, very involved in the community that I grew up in. And and so it was a part of me and I was a part of something called Operation Understanding, which brought together Black and Jewish teens for a year-long experiencing, experience deeply delving into each other's backgrounds and histories, tracing parts of the civil rights movement, and then uh, having a charge to speak to the community as high school students about a future of leadership that doesn't accept discrimination in any form. And so all of these things are part of my fabric. And then, you know, I got married very young and some of my own ideas of what I was going to do with myself, how I was going to lead in the world, shifted for a little while. And I became a young mom and had three kids very close together. And for a while, just, you know, devoted myself to parenting. And at some point, um, you know, realized that there were other dreams that I had and other ways that I wanted to contribute in the world. And part of that was uh, really opened up by being becoming part of the Nexus global movement, you know, bringing together social entrepreneurs, activists, uh, you know, impact investors, leaders from uh, of the next generation and being in that environment really reminded me that, oh my goodness, I have all of this potential that feels like it's dying inside of me. And so I had to bring that to life. And in the time since then, the ways uh, probably, you know, the, over the past seven years of my life, I've really brought uh, to fruition or continue bringing into this physical reality, a lot of things inside of me about how I want to give in the world and what I want to do. And some of the ways that I'm doing that are through uh, working to launch a juvenile alternative to detention program in South Carolina, my home state in Charleston. Um, Some of it is through having become a, a life coach and you know, coaching people to try to align more deeply with themselves and unlock all of the forms of infinite intelligence hiding inside of us. And, you know, part of it is through serving with Israel Aid, uh, the largest Israeli humanitarian organization, which um, works in, you know, currently over 15 countries uh, in disaster affected communities, refugee communities, and a very community first uh, approach that does not have a savior complex is so beautiful and really make sure that all of that work is uh, fully transferred into the community and through the Conrad Challenge and uh, serving in the Conrad Challenge and innovation challenge for teams of three to five, you know, high school students from all over the world to create commercially viable solutions to challenges in energy innovation, cybersecurity, health tech, you know, ed tech, and then. Uh, I'm a visual artist and a poet and, and, and I'm a parent. And so all of these things I'm telling you, and it's a sort of sea of things I'm sharing, but that's to say that I've not ever learned to limit myself to one thing and that I'm trying to find a way to organically serve with my organic gifts in my heart uh, in a way where I can stand by those principles that my dad taught me. Aaron, lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I come from a, a very nice upper middle class family where both parents worked um, very long hours to provide a wonderful childhood for us. And so 
Um, we did not do as much, we didn't have as much direct engagement with the community did, um, or with the community as Andre did in her early childhood. But we volunteered um, and we cared and all of us, um, all of us talked a lot about how we wanted to change the world um, when my, my brother and sister and I grew up. My, my parents uh, liked to joke that my first word was why. Um, and now that I have uh, stepkids, I sort of understand where that recognition comes from, but it was, it was true. And I spent my childhood and, and uh, early developmental years kind of questioning everything, um, everything, I could, everything I could see and experience. Um, and that curiosity led me to a lot of interesting places. I dropped out of college after a year. Um, I became one of the, the first people in the world to have uh, fully read the, the Linux kernel and learned all about the sort of exponential technology that was building, building out something that today we call Web 1.0. Um, and I dove headfirst into that, and it was amazing. It was amazing what you could do. It was incredible what could be created in, you know, in very compressed timeframes. And so I became an entrepreneur um, and I built tech companies and consumer and business products. Um, and all throughout that process, I worked really hard. I worked 12 hours a day. I slept under my desk. I did all the things that you do, or at least we did in startups um, in those days. And, uh, and I never thought to look around and wonder what was going on. Um, and so I, I like to... I like to say that I woke up in 2015. Um, I had exited a previous business. I'd had a little bit of time off. Um, and I really started to take stock of like, hey, I have the opportunity now to focus my energy where I choose um, rather than just chasing the ring. And I'd also noticed something really interesting about all the people that I had worked with up until that time, which was there was this very bright dividing line between the way that some people were, were viewed and others were viewed. And what I began to learn is that if a person has a mission, which is larger than the organization that hosts them, right? Whether they're an employee or a shareholder or whatever, um, then that mission can be the hinge point for their decisions um, in a way that uh, in a way that includes more people than just the organization they're inside of. Um, and so I, I had this very specific experience while I was uh, with PayPal where a boss of mine, a wonderful, an incredible mentor, um, he was one of those people. He was known as a person who was going to change the face of the payments industry. Nobody else walking around the halls had such a recognition. Everybody else was like a this or a that at PayPal doing their thing. This person was held apart. Um, because his mission was so obviously larger. And the context was he graced PayPal with his presence. They were lucky to have him there because he was a person changing the face of payments that happened to be at PayPal. And for me, that was a recognition. I realized that um, purpose changes everything, that mission changes everything. And that for the first time in my life, I had an opportunity to decide what my, my mission was um, without having to worry about where my next meal was going to come from. Um, and so about that time, uh, I, I became aware that things were not what I thought they were in health. I became aware that paradoxically, the healthcare system is not designed to deliver health. Um, really, it's, it's, it's designed very specifically to diagnose people with diseases and then try to manage them. But it doesn't do much if you're not diagnosable with the disease. And sometimes you get diagnosed with the disease you don't really have. 
Um, and I thought that was strange. I also noticed that people were scared to talk about it. Um, they were scared of what might happen to them. They were worried about their future health. And they didn't feel like they had agency to change it um, because we're, we're all sort of brought up in this context or many of us are brought up in a context where somebody else knows better. You listen to what they do and, um, and that's it, right? That's, that's as far as the thinking goes. Um, I became very fascinated with the idea that all the way as far back as Hippocrates, um, individuals, uh, and this is blindingly obvious, but still not, not often talked about, individuals um, are the roots of their own health experience. What we choose to do and how we choose to behave and who we choose to interact with and the things we choose to do, all of that has a tremendous effect on our health span, along within the context of our total lifetime, we're healthy our lifespan, how long we actually live, our quality of life, how much, how much value and enjoyment we get out of each day, and ultimately the contribution that we're able to make to the others around us and the rest of the world. Um, and, um, and that bugged me because I was learning so much about it and, and understanding how much agency we all have, and yet noticing that people uh, just weren't aware of and, and maybe were scared to find out how much agency they have. Um, and so that's led to the mission that I'm on today, um, where the goal of the organization that I'm building is actually to give people full agency over their health and not just that, give them a way to give back um, to other people in their own health experiences. Um, so that's, that's my all-consuming mission today. I'll just uh, tie one other point of reference in between Andre and I. Both of us are avid coaches um, and both of us uh, came to that as a consequence of our own experience engaging with coaches and sort of noticing how much it helped and, and what the difference was on the other side of it. Um, and it's something that we spend a lot of time talking about, like what are, what are the access to, what are the accesses that people have to behavior change? Um, how can we engage people in, uh, in, in coming to a desire and an intention um, to improve themselves? And how can we be amazing support for that process while learning ourselves? Uh, and that's, that's, that's what we end up talking about late at night when, uh, when everything else is done. Yeah. So how's that? I mean, thanks for sharing both of your, in, you know, your individual uh, backgrounds and how that's actually led to today. Uh, curious that um, a lot of that experience, your, your coaching is derived from your journey um, to a large extent. I mean, it really is an experiential um, exercise to convert experience into coaching, essentially. Um, and uh, curious on on what's that look like? Because, you know, years ago, sort of coaching sort of used to have a, a pejorative label on it, but now it's moved into sort of having more of a, a valuable currency and seen as somebody taking initiative or agency with them I mean, their particular interest in doing or being a certain um, a person in, in the world. So can, can you walk me through um, the, the why you do it? One, because um, it is a little laborious to some extent, right? I mean, it's a heavy lift. Um, you know, I mean, there are parts that are heavy um, about it, whether it's administratively heavy because it's probably one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so I know a guy like Aaron's used to working at scale, but there's a different, it's a whole different mentality to work on one-on-one -on -one coaching versus being a mindset of scaling things. If I mean, you're in tech, you're, or have been socialized in the tech, it's basically second nature to think about scaling beyond, 
Um, and I mean, Andrea, this may not be, um, you're probably not socialized to scale, um, but you're also um, sort of bring sort of this artist background. I guess where I'm going with this is that like when you guys are having these chats at night about your coaching experiences, I mean, what are some threads that I mean, you guys are sort of seeing as part of from your own vantage point, the experience that you're having with it, but then also any archetypal patterns that you're seeing in who you are coaching and what is a profile of somebody that you are helping? Hmm. Hmm. Okay, I'll start. Um, so I think there are many threads between the coaching, but sometimes there's a different approach. And part of that approach is comes through our life experience and through our various, you know, our differing life experience, but also I think each person, and this is something that Aaron and I have spent time talking about, there's sort of a habit change archetype, I would say. There are different, you know, there, there might be some people need a compassionate approach to unlock. And some people need a little bit of more of the, okay, here, here you go, drill sergeant, a little bit more of that. And those approaches are very personality based. And so in terms of the type of person who I'm coaching, I'm generally coaching the person who would like the compassionate approach, the person who might have felt paralyzed by their own self-judgment, who um, maybe, is, you know, the way I like to think about it is they're standing on a spiritual edge and they're knowing that there's this other way to live, but they're really having trouble getting their mind, body, and heart to cooperate with each other. So maybe intellectually, they understand that there's this other way that could be loving towards themselves, that there's more to unlock within themselves. And maybe they don't know the pathway to getting towards that, you know, lowering their self-judgment, getting their literally their bodies and nervous systems to cooperate. And, and so for me, generally speaking, I will be working with the very big hearted people who might be very much in their thinking minds and have a little bit of trouble connecting their heart and gut minds and their other forms of intelligence. And I'll be working in the compassionate approach to help them unlock themselves. And yes, you know, art, all of that has been a very healing process for me, something where I've been kind to myself. Even with art, I started with doodling, making small pieces of art that were bite-sized that I knew where I, I could accomplish something because I had been so stuck in my head, you know, that, oh, imagining what an audience might think or imagining this or just stuck in the self-judgment or thinking I won't accomplish something that I gave myself these bite-sized things. So for me, my own experience has been unlocking through compassion and in that sort of process. And so, you know, for Aaron, like a lot of the places where we bridge is that behind it are all the same things. We've all, you know, both of us have found uh, a lot of growth through meditation and finding other ways to get our nervous systems to cooperate with us. There's sort of the scientific approach and the spiritual approach. And again, like I said, in the beginning of this, I'm not really one to see a separation between things. I see art, science, and spirituality all as one thing with different ways of uh, describing them or translating them. So Aaron might lean more towards the scientific translation and I might lean more towards an artistic translation or a poetic translation. But all of those things are just translations of, you know, universal codes and archetypes. Um, and so that's, yeah, like it, the stuff beneath it is the same. Aaron, does that, does that sound right to you? 
Oh yeah, it's it's spot on. I mean, I think you and I both come from the same place of love, acceptance, non-judgment, um, you know, focus on an in, unlocking an individual's um, potential. And, and we both trained in the same techniques for um, nervous system management and stress management and sort of like mood, mood and, and emotional uh, regulation. And all of those things are super important um, because as I like to tell people, Descartes was wrong. Like mind is not different stuff from body. In fact, it's all one system. And that system affects itself in all of these sort of recursive ways. And so when we try to separate one part from another and deal with one part absent its effect on the system, none of the results are, are what they could be. Um, because in effect, it's the system you're trying to affect and not the single part. Um, the framework that I use for my coaching, and I often coach people who are super intense entrepreneurs trying to do something that's never been done before on a schedule on a shoestring with all the stress in the world attached to it what i like to do is give those people permission to enjoy the process because that's what i didn't get to do when i was building my first ventures i thought it had to be i thought the suffering was uh was necessary and what I've, what I've discovered since then is, is the pain is necessary, but the suffering is optional to quote the cliche. Um, but I just, but nobody ever told me that. And frankly, if I'd asked, I think people would have told me, but I wasn't listening anyway. So, so nobody was trying very hard. Um, and since then, what I've learned is that um, just one, one lens on it is, you know, in our culture, we have all these different associations between different neurotransmitters and like and physiological states so like dopamine is pleasure response and serotonin is for love and oxytocin is for bonding and um you know adrenaline is for energy and epinephrine is, is for thinking um so what we've learned from a neuroscience standpoint and a research standpoint in the last 10 years is that the state of flow which i associate with peak performance and i seek in my own life and i train people to accomplish in theirs state of flow is a very interesting phenomenon because it's actually the state in which all of those neurotransmitters are present so it's sort of the brain and the body of the nervous system bathing in all of the emotions that we're chasing all the time while maintaining focus on something that prevents the ego from taking you over and sort of sending you sideways um, and so i train people on how to achieve flow and how to build the structures and the routines and the nutritional basis, the biological and the cognitive and the spiritual basis for allowing that to emerge. Um, and, and really, Andrea is doing that too, right? She's, she's relieving people from the things that might get in their way of experiencing, of having an optimal experience and of, and of delivering sort of optimal output into the, their choice of where their energy goes. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a microcosm of how I think about it. Um, and I'll just, I'll, I'll mention as a side note, the greatest joy for me is to re-engage with a coaching client after a little while and hear everything is different, right? Like this, this perspective that, and, and without taking any credit for it, the perspective that people gain from that process is something that changes their lives. And so I actually think of it as a scaling function because now here's a person who's going to be out in the world behaving in a way that results in more love and more benefit and more caring and probably more success as a consequence of the interaction that we've had on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So for me, it actually feels like a very scalable way to impact the world because now there's another sentient, brilliant being out there doing something um, as a consequence of the interaction with that.
When, um, see, Andrea, do you have a lot of uh, emphasis on process uh, as well? And the, I mean, I guess where, and the reason why I ask this is because um, you guys are both doers to some extent, you know, I mean, I don't want to create sort of a dichotomy of doing and being here since, since I know you guys are very good at blending categories, but let's say for conversational purposes that, that, I mean, there is sort of like, an achievement for even process. Like, I, so, um, you know, I just am curious on how you guys sort of navigate both in your own lives, that sort of that ebb and flow and that dialectical dance between doing and being, and then how that sort of converts to and informs your coaching as well. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you talked a lot about um, process and disease, um, Aaron, um, and then Andrea, you focus sort of on the love piece. And um, the reality is, is that, I mean, those are being qualities. And yet uh, the means sometimes gets confused with the end and the end gets confused with the means sometimes. I'm just curious on how you guys reflect on that and sort of um, keep awareness around uh, that dance. So... It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think that's been a personal struggle for me, this idea of the doing and the being. And if that's the dance that you're referring to, again, I, I came from this family of very, very high achievers who had uh, done a lot on a, you know, an externally measurable kind of way. You know, my dad had over a hundred patents. My parents, you know, lived in a trailer, you know, living paycheck to paycheck when they first met. And then uh, built this very large uh, company that was all over the world. And, and all of those things, for a while, they felt like this thing on top of me. Like I saw it like this thing that I was drowning underneath that I was never, ever going to swim above. That how is it possible? I'm not a genius like my dad was. I'm not going to have over 100 patents. I'm not going to go from you know, rags to riches or whatever you want to call it, that wasn't going to be my story. And so in a way, I was so attuned to this world of achievement that I felt paralyzed. I'm like, well, there's no way I can do anything more than what's been done before me. And so I had to psychologically take this thing that was above me, this like thing above me and move it beside me and say, okay, this is now a link in my chain. This does not define me. It's not something that I need to swim above. It's something that's next to me. And like, you know, also struggling with um, coming from a place of financial privilege and struggling with that story. And my family was interesting because even though, you know, uh, my parents had done very well financially, we continued living in a middle-class neighborhood and, you know, leading this uh, pretty, normal life that people had assumptions that that wasn't my lifestyle and then were always be shocked and surprised when they came over to my house. Um, so it was always a confusing subject for me. And I think that that's part of what has led me to becoming a coach is the experience of my own paralysis and self-judgment and really spinning, like a lot of spinning. I also have you know ADHD and didn't really learn that uh, until my thirties, which uh, it helped me understand myself a little bit better and understand how, even though I was a high achiever, I always felt like I was drowning. And so for me in this doing and being my process of healing has come through honoring being and honoring that the invisible world 
is has just as much value as the visible and external world. And so a lot of my process is about honoring the invisible, honoring the infinite internal world and how the work that we do on the inside can impact whether you're thinking, I'm sure that there would be a scientific way to explain this, but I'm thinking on this spiritual level that the work we do inside of ourselves, you know, it's, if you think of regenerative structures and regenerative things, we are, you know, we have to make sure that all of the pieces are harmonious and we are one of the pieces of this thing that we, this, these great structures that we hope to be regenerative and harmonious. So for me, it's about uh, accessing regenerative energy, our own regenerative energy. And for me, that has come through accepting myself more, honoring myself more, being able to say, I am enough, whether or not you can see and measure my work from the outside. I know about this internal work. And yes, in part of that, in terms of now, how that being connects to doing is in doing that and accepting being and honoring the invisible, it has actually unlocked my doing more. It has organically made my productivity increase because also I'm being productive in the areas where I have organic gifts. I'm accepting myself, the type of leader I am, what I bring to a circle. And it's interesting kind of, you know, way that's not always predictable and it's not a predictable archetype in a certain way, but I have accepted that. I know what I bring to a circle. I know my weaknesses. I know my strengths. And I have found the strengths inside of the weaknesses. And that, again, that being and accepting the being has unlocked the doing. And so that's part of what I do in my coaching is saying, hey, accept becoming more of exactly who you are. That's what you need to do. It's not about reaching outward. It's not about learning this thing over there or becoming this thing that you're not. It's about becoming more and more and more of this divine fractal that you are. We're each made exactly as we are intended to be. Now let's unlock that and the infinite wisdom inside of it. That's, that's a really, uh, that's, a, that's a shared perspective. Um, the notion that acceptance is the key um, on many levels to, uh, to, to merging doing and being, right? Um, and, and flow is a really interesting state it is the state of merger between those things. It's actually like the pinnacle experience of doing well-being. Um, and so, so that's always been a pursuit in my life. I've, I've been a adrenaline junkie since I was a little kid. Motorcycles, skiing, airplanes, fast cars, like whatever, whatever it was I could do to speed up fast enough to where the little voice in my head would fall away and I could be totally absorbed in the moment um, was, was what I was after. And so, and that's what led me to entrepreneurialism because there's always another thing to do. Um, you're never finished. So as long as you want to stay grinding and doing, you can do it and you'll be rewarded for it within that culture because that's, that's something that it prizes. Um, what dawned on me after, after some time, and I would say late, is that I get more done um, when I'm more comfortable being. And so, uh, so, for, so for me, they're, they're, they're a holistic pairing. Um, and as I have, as I've learned to observe my own emotional and cognitive states carefully, um, I've come to understand just how much friction there was in my doing when I didn't have a calm mind, um, when I was worried about the thing I wasn't dealing with, or 
when there was a when there was a concern on the horizon that I felt powerless to address, all those things would actually prevent me from doing the things that I had intended to do. Um, and so, in my life, there's a there's a a goal, an intention, a constant uh, a, a constant pursuit of balance between those states. Um, and I've come to understand that if I'm not calm and centered then the most productive thing that I can do is punch out of whatever I'm doing and go get common centered before I continue, because otherwise I'm going to be blind to something that I would have wanted to know. Yeah, I feel very similar. And um, I see this thread of centeredness, um, acceptance. Um, I love this idea of innate capacity um, and that it's an ongoing discovery of your who-ness that you're, um, you know, endowed uh, with, as opposed to thinking that it has to be something that's strived toward, um, that it's really an unfolding um, or an uncovering of an existing capacity that's already present. I do want to touch on this. Um, it seems like all three of us have a really a deep fascination perhaps through a fair amount of suffering. Um, our fascination uh, accrued here, but um, around this idea of the central nervous system. And uh, I, you know, I bring that up because kind of like what Aaron was saying is, is that I've come to the point in my life when, when I feel like I'm dialed in, I'm, I'm, I'm reflective enough to realize that the best thing that I can probably do right now is to stay still. Um, and until I can um, comfortably stay still is when, and I don't need to put a timer on me, I can just feel it. But if there's an anxiousness that doesn't allow me, to be, that means I need to stay still even longer. And then that's when I need to go back out into the world. Um, because like you, Aaron, I think that there is sort of a, a, a scaling of the behavioral presence of somebody and that ripples through, right? And it has a huge impact like the folks that you guys are coaching. So what I'd like to hear a little bit more about is like what insights and practices do you guys do to sort of revert and stay centered? Um, and how much buy-in do your, um, and like my, my buy-in is the right word, but I mean, how do you share these opportunities with, with others when, when it comes to um, the central nervous system, because here's the categories that I see out in the world, either behind door number one is people that are, um, have been socialized or traumatized so much that they're just numb to their entire existence. So they actually, uh, the secular world just becomes some compensate, uh, compensatory theater, like sort of what you described, Aaron, where you just rotate from one adrenaline moment to another or intoxicate ourselves or just, you know, sort of entertain ourselves. Um, and then sort of door number two is people that intuitively know that, but there's a shame around the body. You know, there's sort of this old Victorian sense, this legacy nauseousness around the body as a, a, a sinful phenomena. Uh, and then door number three is like, I just love my body and I'm all in. And if I could do this shit all day long, I would do it all day long. Um, and so like, there's these different doors and I'm guessing everybody that comes to you guys has somewhat comes through sort of different doors. And so I'll just leave it there and just sort of how, how, how you guys start approach the, you know, the nervous system practice. 
So again, in taking the very compassionate approach uh, that I take, which is based upon my own experience where I had deep resistance towards um, things like meditation. For a long time, I would say to myself, uh, just, you know, I was a young mom and I didn't have a lot of time. And I'm like, I felt like it was so masculine, this idea like that you could take 20 minutes out of your schedule to meditate, that there was just, it, it, it kind of made me angry. It was like, stop telling me to meditate because you're able to like put 20 minutes aside for this. And there was a time in my life when 20 minutes felt really inaccessible to me. And so for me, it's about starting with what's easy. And so I very much encourage people that you don't have to start with what's hard. You can start with what's easy. And so it's really about building muscle memory. And even for myself, I would love to tell you that I now feel that 20 minutes is accessible to me every day but I don't. And so, you know, sometimes in a day when my ego is taking over, I might be like, oh, well, Aaron, you can use the sauna and you can do your hyperbaric oxygen chamber for an hour, but I don't have time for that with the kids and, and all of those things. And, but no, I'm happy that he does those things. And I did, and I definitely support that. But what I do for myself, right. I don't need to place the blame on Aaron. What I do for myself is I still give myself, even for myself, not just for coaching clients, uh, the opportunity to say today, your meditation might be seven minutes and that's okay because seven minutes is what you feel is accessible to you right now. And really it's about keeping that muscle memory. So if somebody told me that the one minute was what felt accessible to them, then I'd say, start with one minute, start with one minute every day and work on that consistency. And, you know, so really it's about starting with what's easy. And for me, in terms of you know, what Aaron also shared that coaches and our own coaching experiences have been part of our journeys towards becoming coaches. Um, I worked with a coach, uh, her name's Marla Beck, and she was a coach specifically for artists and writers. And she really helped unlock so much of my resistance by saying, well, if this doesn't feel easy, start with that. So I came, came to her because I felt like I was a blocked writer. And I wanted to be writing. And then she's like, well, how does drawing feel if writing feels so hard? And here I am, however many years later, I mean, you know, five or six years later, and I have hundreds of pieces of art, visual art that I've created. And that was because I started again, like I mentioned before, with doodling and it felt easy and it became, so you, you also asked about what we do um, for ourselves. And so, you know, one of my, practices, like I would say transmutation and shifting practices is uh, drawing and creating art. And that's one of the ways that I shift my, my own emotion and feeling. So for me, it's about meeting people where they are. And so when I coach, I'm not necessarily presenting someone with, sometimes I might present them with a specific tool, but often that tool that we come up with will be co-created in a session. And, you know, I'll, uh, I'll be hearing them reflecting back from their body language and their word patterning and what they share. And then we'll come to, well, what would be the habit to support that transformation? And I might say, this is what I'm hearing from you. And does that resonate with you? And then they say, well, yes, but this resonates more and I'm up for committing to that. And then, and then I say, okay, well, it sounds to me like you want to commit to this. Now let me hold you accountable, you know, to this thing, but it's a tool that has been co-created in a very personalized way, meeting where you are, starting with what feels easy and accessible. 
I just want to mention that both Andre and I have a, have a mutual friend, also a coach, who likes to say, um, when we use the phrase hold accountable, we often remember, remember the accountable part and forget the held part. Um, and I think something that Andrea does incredibly well is to remember both of those parts in her accountability setting, mm-hmm. uh, which unlocks things for people, right? It's a, way of, uh, it's a way of relieving us from the guilt that we can't experience when we promise ourselves something and don't follow through on it. That's actually just a way to get trapped and wind up in a, in a negative mental state. So with respect to the, the central nervous system, What I do is I give people uh, permission to believe that they can change it. And that's not a common belief in our society. We're sort of, you know, we're socialized to believe that our emotions are uh, things that happen to us and that our emotional states are like the weather, nothing that we can realistically have an effect on, but that's just not true. And so uh, letting someone know that and giving them permission and the tools for exploring that space uh, is is totally transformational. Because when someone realizes, oh, I can I can change my emotional state um, just by just by taking some simple steps that I can remember, it's incredibly empowering. It gives people then um, it gives people a handle to have some faith that they can change things that are even harder. Um, and so for me, it's it's actually the root of the discussion because it's a way of unlocking all the other things that people want. And it's actually not that hard, as, as all three of us know, um, to have some consequential effect on your own emotional state, um, which, of course, relates to, to nervous system state. So that's that's something that uh, that's that's one of the first things that I like to work on uh, with folks. And it's really access to uh, lots and lots of other capabilities. Um, I also. Uh, I also believe that there, there's something I read a long time ago. Um, Carlos Castaneda, for uh, all of his, his faults, uh, he may or may not have been an incredible anthropologist. I'm actually not sure, but he was absolutely a great writer and character developer. And his, uh, his Don Juan um, the Yaqui sorcerer, um, sort of at the center of, of his novels, um, he tells his student, death always comes from the left. And so what he's seeing there is, your death is always stalking you. Your next minute is not guaranteed to you. And so if you choose to be blind to that fact, it will result in egotism. It will result in you thinking about things that may or may not actually be consequential in the moment. And so if you can remain aware of the fact that the next moment is promised to no one, it actually cuts through a lot of the strictures that we place on ourselves from an emotional standpoint. So I like to link those two concepts. You have control mm-hmm. over your emotional state. You don't actually have control over your lifespan. So let's drop all of the assumptions and see what we can do in this moment. Well, I love the idea of... Um moving toward a close that revolves around death is to our left. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, 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 I really agree with that. Um, you know, the finitude of life has always been sort of with me uh, since I, my early twenties and I can't really understand its origin, but um, it's been there so much that I end up doing my dissertation on, um, on, on loss and passing. And it continues and right above me is about, you know, 
12 books that uh, deal with end of life um, and people that have been with a lot of people in the late stages of life. Um, I mean, uh, Stephen Levine's a big influence on, uh, on me for sure. Um, and a few others up there, but um, I'd like to sort of close out with um, what emerged uh, for you that maybe it may have been left unspoken. And then also to share a little bit about where people can learn more about, uh, you know, the work that you guys are doing in the world as well. Well, I don't know if it was left unspoken, but just now when you're talking about death and coming, you know, was it coming from the left? Mm -hmm. um, well, I thought of my ancestors and I thought of, I, I feel blessed that even though I lost my dad about 14 years ago and I lost my grandmother, who I was very close with, who was a Holocaust survivor um, about two years ago, they are with me in new form and their wisdom is with me. So uh, I shared some of my dad's wisdom earlier, but now my grandma's there and she and she said to me, I just hear her in her accent, Andia, why are you always running from home? Home is so beautiful. When I would travel, she'd be like, Andia, why are you always running from home? Enjoy your home. Andia, dance with your husband. Andia, enjoy your children. And so I hear my grandma. That's what's coming up for me is this wisdom, uh, just presence. Yeah. And having love for those in your environment, having love and gratitude for your home. And so that's something that's coming up and something that I'm working, you know, each day in myself and through my work to help unlock that presence and love. Love that. Um, I'll just underline that. I mean, gratitude is, is uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible force and cultivating it in my own life is, uh, changed everything and and honestly I credit Andrea with a great deal of that um, we we like to say that we came to the same place from opposite ends of the map sort of like accidentally ran into each other right in the middle um, and so one way of characterizing that is that um, I'm I'm a head first heart second sort of personality um, like my heart rate maybe maybe saying all sorts of things that I just can't hear because the voice in my head is really loud um, and Andrea is so heart connected um, that the gravitational pull of that was, you know, uh, was was inescapable. Uh, thankfully, um, and it really taught me about um, about the kind of equanimity that being grateful for this moment um, can bring into life, and the kind of power that that sort of equanimity has. Um, I'll just wrap up by saying uh, my project is called Collab.Health. By the time this rolls, uh, you'll be able to go there. Um, you'll be able to join the waitlist, and soon you will be able to aggregate your own personal health data to gain new insights, uh, to donate for, for causes that you care about, um, and to monetize that data instead of allowing yourself to be captured by uh, the sort of surveillance capitalism that is rife in today's environment. Please join us. Yeah. and. Um... I am so grateful to be able to be in this virtual space uh, with you, Gino, and with Aaron. And it's so beautiful to be in a partnership where we can share all the different types of spaces so that, uh, you know, Aaron and I pull each other into a beautiful growth orbit 
And I'm forever grateful to, for that. And uh, for me, you can find me at, um, at andrealz.me. So A-N-D-R-E-A-L-Z.me. And you'll find my art there and a little bit about my coaching. And, uh, and yeah, invite you to, to come see. You can see a little bit visually some of my, my personal journey. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, to both of you, thank you so much for um, being open and, um, you know, sort of sharing your experience um, with me and then um, obviously with a lot of others here uh, shortly. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.